Bill invited me to join him in a sermon series of the last words, and these are the last words recorded by our Savior Jesus in the moments of his death by the various gospel accounts. Now, it may seem like a throwaway statement, but words matter. What we say fills the air with our ideas, and they can linger long past a conversation and long past our own lives. And the words spoken at the time of death are particularly searing since they may literally take someone's breath away forever. At a bedside, it might be of those that are dying, it might be a word of forgiveness, a word of hope, a blessing, or a final, I love you. And they are spoken from the heart. In John's gospel, Jesus speaks volumes on the night of his last supper. If you have a Bible that's got a red letter for every time Jesus speaks, it is nothing but red ink for chapters and chapters. He prophesies about our future, he prays for us, and he speaks and speaks. But once Jesus is stripped and nailed to a tree, his words are very brief, but no less profound and no less meaning than in those brief words. So before I read them to you, let's please join together in prayer. O oh God, may your word be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Give us grace to receive your truth in faith and love, that we may hear these words and join in your beloved community. Amen. Listen now for God's word as I read from John chapter 19. Standing at the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, Jesus said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her to his own household. Here ends our reading. From birth into death, relationships with other humans, it forms it forms our life, that's what living is all about. And the communities we live in determines the quality of our lives and reveals the uniqueness we each possess. And they were the ones that, these communities that connect us to a higher purpose. Lofty words, let's consider some examples. Navy SEALs are some of the finest in the armed forces and operate with sophisticated equipment. I can't begin to imagine what it's like to have night vision goggles or their specialized weaponry or other equipment, and we have movies that even try to get it, but we don't. Yet when they train, they train as a six-person team, and they start by carrying a basic log. Imagine a rudimentary telephone pole-like log. It's taller than Bill Evertsburg. It weighs between 180 and 200 pounds, and that's what they get to carry as a six-person team. Now you might think six, six very athletic, accomplished recruits, that's about 30 pounds a piece. You can carry 30 pounds a piece, but they start running in formation in a single line, carrying it on their right shoulder, and then they move it to their left shoulder, and then they stand in a straight line, shoulder to shoulder, and they carry it in front of them, marching, going up and down steps, running on the sand, and then running in the water. Two hours later, with their precious log, they stand in a straight line, and then they get to hold it up above their heads for 45 seconds, level. That's how they begin to train together. 
Before anyone gets sophisticated equipment, they learn to work together. They learn each other. It's through the simple log drill that they support each other, and no one shies away from calling it like they see it. Great job. Keep it up. You got to try harder. They keep each other in line, literally because their lives depend upon seeing the truth in each other and having it called out in themselves. They need to know their vulnerabilities, their unique strengths, and together they build the confidence to pursue the unique missions that they'll be entrusted to carry out. Now, not many of us can be a Navy SEAL or perhaps even desire to be a Navy SEAL. So let's consider something that's open to everyone and all kinds of people join in. Improv. At Second City here in Chicago, people are flocking to learn the skills of improv and not to become the next Tina Fey or Steve Carell, although some may harbor that secret ambition. But the real reasons for showing up are as varied as their professions, their shapes, and their futures. In an improv training, it starts the same for everyone. They are standing in a simple circle with their other recruits and trainees, and they're throwing a green playground ball at each other. Now, in these not-so-childish games, each person learns to see and to hear and to respond in ways to each other that we often overlook in human life when someone's standing next to us. To see, to see each other, is insufficient to describe the awareness that you need to have. I need to see Eric, and I need to make sure Elaine sees me and that we're working together in this. Because improv is always in an ensemble. It's a team of individuals who learn to rely upon each other in real time. They get feedback, it was good, hey, you missed it. As obviously as one who literally drops the ball and doesn't learn the game, when they're in a scene, they have to call out who steps out of character, who misses a cue, and what they do well. Everyone will blow it at some time or another. But improv demands that the ensemble members work finely in tune with each other because no one gets the spotlight or the laugh alone and they know that when they bomb, they will all bomb together. Now the Chicago location for Second City attracts over 5,500 students each year for these improv classes. And one of their senior instructors reflected, he quote, I quote him, People are here because they're looking for an authentic community where they can learn to be themselves and to be their very best. There are no rules other than just shine. In ensembles, they feel fully alive, which is why they come back here week after week and year after year. It's where they find an accepting community. And what he said next really hurt my heart. He said, Sunday is the most popular day of the week. This is where people come to be in a community where they are accepted. And I just wanted to scream and say, no, it's church. We come to church. That's where we bring our whole selves, our broken parts, and where we learn to shine and love each other and hold each other. But see, we thirst for the safety of these communities where we can be vulnerable and where we can learn to rise to our highest potential. Communities of trust, that's where we feel safe and that's where we want to live. Maybe we find it in a book club, or the wilderness confirmation trip, or it's a golf club. You've been playing golf with the same eight guys for 20 years. You raised your kids together. You've gone through careers together. 
Maybe it's a new mom's group and now you're sending your kids off to college. Or perhaps it's the Rebel football team here in Kenilworth or the Masonic Lodge. When we look back on our lives, we oftentimes find that where we found our truest selves revealed, where we were able to trust and formed bonds that endured are from the times and spaces that give us this kind of authentic belonging. It's a community. We don't live apart from one another and we owe our very lives to those that surround us. Now the women's reading group is going through a book recently published in 2015 by David Brooks. I'm sure that many of you have read it. The Road to Character. We're reading it, we're savoring it one chapter at a time. The stories Brooks writes of luminaries who exemplify character always begin in their community in which they were raised. Who inspired them? What happened when they failed? Who picked them up and how did they learn from that? What were the guideposts that shaped them? Dwight D. Eisenhower. He was raised by a mother who held a strict pattern of personal conduct which was deeply religious and that stood in stark contrast to the very impulsive, passionate, rage-filled Ike. On one Halloween, his parents told him he was too young to go trick-or-treating with his older brothers. And when his pleas were ignored, he, and was left behind, he raced outside and started pounding his fists on the apple tree in the front yard, and he ripped his hands to pieces. Later that night, his mother came to soothe the wounds of his hands and also of his heart, and he recalls that she later told him to be aware of the anger that burned inside of him. She said, hatred is a futile thing, which only injures the person who harbors it. Later on, when Ike was 76 years old and writing his memoirs, he described that night gave him the most valuable lesson of his life. He learned to acknowledge that he was wrong. He learned that he needed to control his rage and he needed to learn that he could step forward and let himself still shine through with what was good. For David Brooks, this story serves as an example of the essential drama in all of our human lives. We need to accept and let that inherent image of God shine. And we also need to accept that we have a passionate side that is selfish and deceiving and self-deceiving. Reflecting on this incident, Brooks reclaims the word sin. He claims that too oftentimes we only find socially acceptable usage of the word sin is when we're describing a fattening dessert and he thinks that's wrong. So he goes on for pages to restore sin as a part of human nature that we need to expect, accept. He argues the capacity to recognize sin and human failings is essential to developing a moral life and living in community with one another. He writes, and this is a long quote, sin is communal while error is individual. You make a mistake, but we're all plagued by sins like selfishness and thoughtlessness. Sin is baked into our nature and is handed down through the generations. We are all sinners together. And to be together is to be reminded that this plight of sin is communal, and so too are the solutions to sin communal. We fight sin together as communities and families, fighting our own individual sins by helping others fight theirs. 
Now, in this secular book on character development, Brooks continues with other aspects of sin for several pages, and then he writes, sin is not a demonic thing. It's just our perverse tendency to mess things up, to favor the short term over the long term and the lower over the higher. Community is where we learn to thrive as individuals, yet within a community we risk isolating ourselves into a cocoon of like-mindedness that can alienate those from the outside, enable members those on the inside and ourselves to deceive ourselves about who we are and who those outside of the community are. Now, John's Gospel begins with Jesus as one with God in the beginning, and we are told, I quote, truth and grace came into our world and walked among us. That was God's incarnation. And throughout God's walk on earth, Jesus invited people to follow him into a new community, which before all else, they are called beloved. They are included in this community simply because they are God's creatures and they are beloved. So Jesus bridged great divides of tribe and class and race, moving freely amongst Samaritans and women and Roman centurions and Gentiles. Tax collectors, fishermen, some carpenters, and people of all shapes and abilities joined his community. And they learned to care for one another, not by carrying a log or throwing a green ball at each other, but by believing in Jesus and having Jesus at the center of the way in which they learned to see each other. They were held accountable. They were called out for mistakes or for not getting it, and they were always forgiven. More accepting of their inherent sin and the abundant grace from Jesus, this group became bigger and stronger and started reaching for that higher ideal above their previous common selves. Sure, the Pharisees and the religious leaders and skeptics were invited, but many of those opted out. Each time we read the story of the people Jesus encounters, however foreign or ancient they may appear to us today, each time in scripture it's an invitation and a mirror for us to see who we really are. Are we, will, are we willing to join this community? Will we accept Jesus' teachings that may contradict what our community says about us and others? However much we may presume that the other not, cannot be in our circle, cannot love us, cannot be loved, Jesus reveals that it is absolutely possible. Now, one of my favorite verses from all of Scripture comes at the point in John's Gospel when Jesus is telling a large crowd that to be a believer, it's open to all, but it may require them to give up previously held notions of social or economic comfort. But more than that, to be a part of this community is going to be taking some risks you're going to have high expectations about how you live out the command to love God above all else. That's the risk to love God. Based upon the way Jesus put it, people left in droves. So after that large crowd dispersed and the faithful remained, Jesus turned to his disciples and he singles Peter out to ask, why are you still here? And this is my favorite verse. Peter responds, where shall I go? You alone have the words to eternal life. Jesus inaugurated a new community founded only on the expectation you're to come as you are, just as God created you. No false pretenses, mistakes and sins are obvious, forgiveness abounds, and all are included. 
It was the most life-giving community those disciples had ever found. Now, Peter believed Jesus had the words to eternal life, and I started all of this by saying that words matter, and those few words that Jesus spoke at the time of his death are paramount in the legacy for those that heard it and for us today. Now, it's sometimes hard to know what's missing, but in John's Gospel, as compared to the other three Gospels, in John's Gospel, Jesus' mother does not have a name. There are narratives throughout John's Gospel that merely identify her as Jesus' mother. And she is present. She's present in the very first miracle story at the wedding of Cana when water is turned into wine, and that's when Jesus addresses her merely with an epithet of woman. It's not a condescension. It's something that would have been common in the first century, but woman is the only thing we know. And now, while watching her son die, she is identified again as Jesus' mother. Also present is a disciple described throughout John's Gospel as simply the one whom Jesus loved. He, too, doesn't have a name. So in the final scene of Jesus' life, he's stripped, he's nailed to the cross, and these are the two that are present, defined only by their relationship to the dying Jesus. Contrary to social custom, Jesus doesn't address the man first, but instead to his mother, Jesus speaks. Woman, behold your son. Just like in Cana, he calls her woman as he hands over the natural family ties. She is to become the mother to another man, not by flesh, but by his word. And turning to the disciple, he says, Behold your mother. Now, behold is not a suggestion, but it's layered with meaning of revelation and discovery far beyond just the word see. The beloved disciple was to see her with Jesus' eyes. Behold is also a command, and it's a pronouncement. It's Jesus saying, here it is. This is what you have. You have each other. To believe in Jesus now demands that they embrace each other as never before. To believe in Jesus is not just a confession or a point of view. It's a way for them to exist in the world, bound to each other by his divine love. Now, perhaps the writer of John was very purposeful in never giving these two people a name. Maybe it's so that we are to put ourselves in those shoes. And remember, Scripture is always a mirror for us. We saw some of this play out in the last week. On February 23rd, it was a big news event of good news. Across all major league training camps everywhere, each baseball player on each baseball team left his cap in the locker room and instead wore a new baseball cap with a unique logo entitled SD. It's the same SD baseball cap worn by those athletes at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. That was on February 23rd, just a couple of days ago. In this simple gesture, these baseball players are claiming to be in a relationship with this new community, a community nobody wants, but it's a community that we have, and that's what developed following the killings last week of 17 youth and teachers. So we are invited from the cross. There are the victim's friends that stand there, 
and we are to behold them in their anger and in their passion. These friends who died, these friends of those who died, they will no longer accept the sins of the community that allowed these murders to occur. Christ is calling us to be in relationship with these youth and to love their lives as much as Christ does. And from the foot of the cross, there are the parents of those innocent sons and daughters who died. To believe in Christ asks us to behold them with his love, a love that is embodied, that faces the messy, grief-filled, and painful existence that they now have, and to be present with them and to say those lives mattered. We are to see them with Christ's eyes. As we hear Jesus' final words spoken to nameless people, we find ourselves at the foot of the cross. We are to hear his words, behold, and to see one another with the same eyes. May it be so. Amen.